Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. As people of the book, Christians have a special relationship to the art of reading. In this episode, Cameron's going to quiz me with a lightning round of questions about whether audiobooks count as reading, if it's okay not to finish books you've started, and what to use when you need a makeshift bookmark. There are some more serious questions in the mix, too, concerning the purpose and benefits of reading. I have to say, this was a fun episode to record. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Well, Pastor Mark, we've been focusing a lot of our episodes recently on different texts or books and love doing that, love talking about books. Today, I want to talk about something broader, just the simple act of reading. The topic of today's episode is is reading. I'd like to keep it somewhat practical. Maybe, maybe we'll go deeper in a, at a few places, but I know... Both you and I are readers. I know many of our listeners are also readers. I think there's something particular about Christians that makes them readers. Obviously, we have a text that we have to read, we get to read. So we could take this in lots of different directions. But first question is very simple. What are you reading right now? Oh, man, that's a good question because I'm actually coming to the close of an epic reading adventure. You know, I, I think I've mentioned before that over the last, I don't know, I think it's been like two years, I've been working my way through the 75 volumes of Inspector Maigret novels written by Georges Simenon. And he's a French author, very prolific, obviously, And for years, I loved his psychological novels, and I always kind of turned up my nose at the detective stories. I don't know what changed, but for some reason, I started reading these things and got hooked. And although I'm not usually a completist, I don't go out and try to, to, to read everything that someone has written. For whatever reason, with this, I have. And I am literally in the final five. They're short books, and um, so that's good. So... um. In more serious reading, I've been reading, obviously, you know, we've talked about biblical critical theory uh, in a past episode, and I'm slowly, You're still working slowly, on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with, with lots of fits and starts. Uh, the new theological introduction to neo-Calvinism, same thing there, where I'm kind of taking it little by little. And, uh, and I actually have a, a little stack of books that are Paris-related, uh, after we took our trip to Paris last year, I've been kind of reading essays and stuff like that 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 have that central theme. So, okay. uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's that's kind of you know, is setting aside you know scripture and that sort of thing. I think those are kind of the main things that uh, that I've been working on the last couple of weeks. Cool. So you mentioned fits and starts, which makes me want to ask. If you think it's okay to put down a book, 
by which I mean not finish it. Yeah. Maybe with the intent of coming back or maybe not. <laughs> well, okay. So I've evolved on that issue over the years. I started off as a, a person who felt obligated to finish everything that he started. And so I hated the idea of not finishing a book. And that was a problem because I've, I've always been one of those people who has multiple books ongoing. And so I would have, you know, five or six or seven books that I hadn't finished. And eventually you would just feel this pressure. Yeah. Um, you got to stop starting new books and start finishing the ones you've already started. And at a certain point, and I don't know when it was, it was after grad school though, I gave myself permission to stop reading things I wasn't that into or things I just wasn't into at that moment. And it was liberating. It also means, though, that there are some sort of favorite authors of mine who I have not read as thoroughly as I should. Um, best example would be Henry James, where I've been obsessed with Henry James for most of my adult life and still have not read all of his major novels. I mean, there's a lot of them, but um, I I was one of those people who always loved like his early phase and not his later phase. And then one summer on the road, I was reading The Wings of the Dove and it suddenly made sense. And I, I was like, I get it. I have leveled up as a reader. I'm going to spend however long I need to spend reading all the rest of these books. And, um, and I've hardly progressed farther. And so I, I have a lot of dreams about, you know, finishing a lot more books than, than I actually have. So, yeah. So it's okay in my book <laughs> to stop reading when you lose interest uh, or just, you know, if things happen and you have to come back to it or something, I, I yeah. don't beat yourself up over it. Hmm. It just so happens that the wings of the dove, that's the title, right? That's the one book in my library that I carved the middle out of and I hide cash. <laughs> I hide cash in there. Well, so if anyone it, breaks into my house. It's a book full of treasures. <laughs> yeah. and in your case, Literally. more than yeah. more than most. But uh, I, I hope the criminal elements who may be overrepresented in our, our listenership don't uh, burgle your house and yes. search for the Henry James. We're going to have right. to get you another copy of Wings of the Dove yeah. to be a decoy. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, another question related is, how do you choose what to read next? I'm fascinated in in how people decide what they're reading and why, and and everybody seems to have a kind of different approach to that. So, do you have any method or not? I feel like I'm the the worst person to answer this because I'm I don't have a method. I, I almost have gone in the opposite direction and, and I, I have an allergic reaction to methods. So in the, like the Christian worldview community, it's very common if you go speak somewhere to have people approach you afterwards and ask for book lists, yeah. you know, not just give me a book recommendation, but give me a list of books that I should read and, and preferably give it, give them to me in order of importance. Yeah. And I just freeze when people ask me stuff like that. You know, I, I don't have the kind of brain that, that uh, easily produces curriculum or, you know, top 10 lists. And so I just, I just read what I'm interested in as long as I'm interested in it. And mm -hmm. so you discover new things and, and, uh, and read them. And 
I, I guess it, it, the corollary is I also dislike all of the rationalizations for reading where we, we try to convince ourselves that reading makes us better people, that it's um, virtuous, that it makes you more employable or, you know, whatever the story is. I think reading is something you really do for pleasure. Mm-hmm. It's something that you do. Um, yes, there's, there's like a higher register to it. You know, there's, there's benefits, but I think ultimately the difference between a person who reads compulsively and a person who does not has to do with the pleasure that they find in reading. And mm-hmm. so for me, part of that is the discovery process and just the fun of hunting things down. The last thing in the world I want anyone to do is tell me what I have to read. <laughs> yeah. I know that you're a fan of Alan Jacobs. Is that right? Yes. He's well, you mentioned pleasure. He has that book titled The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction. That's been out for, I think, at least a decade now. And I, I remember reading that, I think, towards the end of college, or maybe the, the start of college. And he has a section, I mean, it's about reading and, you know, the pleasures of reading. And he has a section in there encouraging people to read with whimsy, I think mm. is what he calls it. And it's essentially what you're talking about, not feeling the pressure to have read is the way he puts it and i think a a lot of people maybe especially more literary people feel a pressure to have read certain texts maybe it's henry james or whatever and you're just basically checking it off the list and he says forget about that read what you're interested in right now and i i started doing that and found that i actually read a lot more Mm -hmm. because the the pleasure i got out of reading was so much more motivating to just to keep going and sometimes that means not finishing an entire text, I'll be honest, but at least I'm reading. Yeah, I mean, back in, wow, this is like the early 2000s, a group of friends of mine in Houston started working our way through the Modern Library Top 100 list of the, the top 100 novels of the 20th century, starting with number 100. And the idea was that when we got to number one, we would actually go on location and do the book discussion it, it, where the book is set, and it's Ulysses, so that would be in Dublin. And I'd already read Ulysses, so I felt like I had a leg up yeah. in the group. But uh, we ne- did not complete the task. We got a lot farther than I would have expected. But part of that process was, because you were discussing the books, you had to kind of force yourself to finish them. And there were some books there that, um, is it J.P. Dunleavy's The Ginger Man, that I was like, I want to unread this immediately. <laughs> Tobacco Road, uh, Erskine Childers, I think. I was just like, oh, why? Why is this on the list? And that ended up being like a a big part of the conversation. Like, why is this on the list? Or why is it so low or so high? Or that sort of thing. And and honestly, all of that feels very downstream from the pleasures of reading. And so I think Jacobs is right. That that if you prioritize the the pleasure elements... I think you you take everything more seriously. You become a better reader. Yeah. And uh, I, I tried to convince people years ago that, that becoming a better reader of any text will make you a better reader of Scripture too. Hmm. And I think that's true for, for anything you read. Like I'm not saying you, know, you need to read great novels so that you can be a better interpreter, reader of Scripture. You can read trash and it would have the same effect, right? Because you're developing aptitude at reading, at handling texts and that sort of thing. So I just think that's um, a byproduct 
but I would never recommend reading voraciously with the goal of, you know, if I read these hundred novels, I'll be a better interpreter of scripture or something like that, you know? Right. And yet you'd probably still see value in reading widely, right? Absolutely. And, and of course this advice, if we want to call it advice, um, doesn't apply to the classroom. I mean, obviously if you're taking a class on literature, you need to follow the recommended readings. You need to kind of cover the, the books that are assigned and, and um, that sort of thing. This, this is outside the realm of that kind of, let's say, literary training and more about just the life of reading. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that's important because like a lot of things in the life of the church, in the life of the mind, I think reading is one of those things that people wish they did more of. And they feel some barriers to entry as well. And so it can be easy to think like if you didn't start early and you haven't read all the quote unquote classics that there's really no hope and all of that. And I I just think, you know, you're, you're better off just jumping in and, and enjoying yourself. Okay. I have a a speed round. Uh Oh, ready for you we've never tried this before i've written some questions about reading and i want to just throw them at you and okay let me clarify the the speed component do i have to answer quickly because you know i'm challenged in that respect i'll do my best as quickly as you can i'll do my best okay i don't think too many of these are too terrible so okay the first one when do you read all the time but the most delightful reading is at night. Uh, I, I love to read in bed. I read before I go to sleep, and it takes forever. And so that that's probably the best. Second best, outdoors. I love to read outdoors. What is your favorite child's book or series? Don't have one. Um, but I didn't read children's books as a child. Um, mm. People hearing that probably think this makes a lot of sense, actually. <laughs> Um, what I read as a child was comic books and, uh, and even like I had all these sort of comic versions of the classics, Jules Byrne and Frankenstein, but as comic books. And I was a voracious reader of those, but I think as a kid, uh, like the first sort of books I remember being kind of obsessed with were like Hardy Boys, uh, Actually, before that, maybe Encyclopedia Brown. So I think Encyclopedia Brown would probably be the the earliest. But but way early, I got sucked into Sherlock Holmes. I had the the edition with all the original Strand magazine illustrations and that sort of thing. And and after that, uh, I wasn't interested in reading, you know, anything where people didn't get murdered and there was <laughs> there wasn't, you know, ratiocination involved. Yeah. Nice. What do you use for bookmarks? All sorts of things. I have a lot of actual bookmarks all over the house from bookstores. Um, If you're an older person, you know that there used to be bookstores and (laughs) that they all used to have, you know, unique bookmarks. Um, You can tell how long I've had a book sometimes by by that. But I've used scraps of paper, post-it notes, uh, money. (laughs) Uh, I, I used to 
you know, put like a dollar bill or $5 bill or whatever and use it as a bookmark with the idea that when I finish this book, I can reward myself. But um, they often end up in books I didn't finish. And so I had, eventually I think I went through and tried to harvest all the right. cash I could find. So, yeah. And that's if, if, if you go in any of my, my book lined rooms, you'll find stuff, you know, being used to mark pages of every conceivable receipts also lots of oh, receipts yeah. i'm always finding do you dog ear pages no no i i don't i do not violate the text in any way uh because i am a a good person and people who do that are bad and um i i once loaned a book a martin amos novel to a friend of mine and when she returned it, she pulled it out of her giant purse to hand back to me. And it was unrecognizable. Like it was a hard cover, but it was, was basically a soft cover by the time it came back with no dust jacket. It had been handed over with a dust jacket. <laughs> all of the pages were bent and, and all of that, you know. And it was one of those moments where you just want to say, you know what, why don't you keep it? Yeah. But uh, I took it back anyway. But then I promptly went out and bought a new copy right. of that book. Wow. And you can tell, like, if, if you look at my books, um, with the exception of maybe something that was for school or uh, some sort of research where I've written in it, um, they're pristine. Like you wouldn't be able to tell this book had been read um, with a few exceptions, but, but I sort of pride myself on not doing violence to the physical objects. So do you take notes? We've talked about you underlining things. Before. Yes, I do. And, and if I know I'm going to do that, I probably will have two copies of the yeah. book. Okay. Um, but it just kind of depends. I also will copy things out and not mark the book itself, mm. just depending on the circumstances. Okay. I have a digression story I just have to tell you quick. We were talking about underlining so many things mm -hmm. in a book that it's like nothing is underlined before. I, I recently ordered a book of poems from some used books bookstore online. And it was, you know, one of the ones that was in good condition, quote unquote. And right. the description is like, may have highlights or something. <laughs> and I op I got the book, I open it up, and the entire first poem is highlighted blue. <laughs> the whole wow. thing. So. Wow. Um, that was terrible. But what is the coolest library you've ever been to? Ooh, that's a good question. So I feel like I've been to a lot of really cool bookstores. I don't know that I've been to a lot of cool libraries. I mean, so much of it is subjective. Um, I, probably, you know, objectively speaking, Cambridge University, I went to the library there, um, Ashmolean Museum Library or something like that. And um, I think that's right. And that was, you know, very Harry Potter-esque, uh, although Harry Potter had not happened yet at that point. And... Uh, and I was, you know, amazed by it all. But but honestly, I think this is going to sound super crazy. But in terms of sense of wonder, the McNeese State University Library in Lake Charles, Louisiana, where I was taken as like an 11 or 12 year old by an older cousin who was in the nursing program. And I was set loose in the library and she let me check out any books I wanted. And uh, I ended up getting a bunch of forensic science books full of very inappropriate 
photos of crime scenes and <laughs> autopsies. But but I was just hooked on the idea of the library as as this kind of temple of wisdom and that sort of thing. And ironically, I've been to places that are fancier. I don't think I've I've ever you know been in in any library that's filled me with as much wonder as that did. Mm-hmm. Okay, then what about bookstores? Coolest bookstore? Uh, the coolest bookstore that I refused to enter on principle was Shakespeare and Company in Paris because there was a huge line of tourists, and that is not the bookstore vibe at all. Right. Uh, bookstore should be empty. There was a place called Abbey Bookstore um, nearby. It's a Canadian English-language bookstore in Paris. That was perfect because it was like a little catacomb of books, um, that was really cool. But I have to say, so, so my, my coolest, weirdest bookstore experience was actually in Jackson, Mississippi. It was a place called Chautauqua Books where the owner gave you a flashlight when you came in because he had decided he was too, too cheap to replace the fluorescent light bulbs when they burned out. And so people could just fend for themselves. <laughs> and as that suggests, there was no organizing principle to this place. It was like a, an Aladdin's cave of, of out of print books. There was one area where there was a lady who was organizing books who I assumed was an employee wrong. She was a local patron who loved the bookstore so much, but was so frustrated by the disorder. She volunteered her time to organize. And you had a strong impression that as soon as she was gone, the manager, you know, moved everything around. But, um, but that place was not only, you know, fantastic to go through, but also kind of my platonic ideal because you can find things in that environment that, you know, better organized places have been picked over by people who know what they're looking for. But that was a place where you're like, there's treasure here. I just have to dig long (laughs) enough and I'll find it. Hmm. Do you consider yourself a slow or fast reader? I consider myself a fast reader, um, but I have become a slow reader over time without realizing it. I think that's partly through our age of distraction. You know, like, like a lot of people, I don't feel that my powers of concentration are what they once were. And I attribute that to, you know, social media and just being online, that way of reading. Uh, But also in some cases, I've become a slower reader because I I enjoy the prose more. Um, I find it harder to read books now that aren't written well. Uh, whereas in the past, I think I had a very low threshold. Yeah. Um, now, I I don't read for story. I read for the storytelling or, or the prose, and and not. You know, not in that sort of cliched, I want flowery prose or whatever, but there's a technical sort of a, a skillfulness yeah. to the writing. that the Artistry. Yeah, it, it really has to be there for me. Otherwise, I just kind of lose interest. Mm-hmm. And so, so, yeah, that does slow you down sometimes. But, yeah. but in the way that you're, you know, you, you slow down in a museum because you right. want to look. Yeah, so it's it's deliberate. Almost. Yes. So, yeah. Okay, a couple more. What's a book that you regret reading? 
<laughs> well, I mentioned a couple yeah. earlier that that I definitely regret reading, and and I wish that I could say that list is pretty short, but it's not. Um, I spent a lot of time investing in like series of books during a certain phase, and and I think especially when I was thinking, oh, I'd like to write crime novels, but before I'd actually started it, I would kind of, you know, be interested in, I want to, you know, see this writer's work or whatever. And I, I, would, I just went too far in some of those things. Not, you know, not that they warped me or something, but, but that had already happened. But it was a waste. And so I, I will say, like, when it comes to physical books, I have way too many of them. And for a long time, I didn't think that was possible. Like, objectively, you couldn't have too many books. But I realized, like, a lot of these books I have, you know, I'd, I would never want to read or read again. You know, I, I, I was holding on to computer programming books from 1997 or something. Like, that's ever going to be relevant. And so... Physically, I need to cull and and just keep sort of the good stuff. But I would say, like timing wise, similar dynamic. That although I said earlier, just read whatever you want, read for pleasure, that sort of thing. I think I I found pleasure in things then that wouldn't be pleasurable now, and so I regret not having sort of figured that out sooner. Um, and and learn that. So a lot of, I, I think, popular writers that maybe I would have even thought of as influences at a certain point. And now I'm just like, Oh, this is not well written um, at all. Yeah. Uh, people I've been compared to as a writer and it was flattering at the time. And now I'm like, really, that's, <laughs> that's what you think I'm like. You know? hmm. Okay. Last one for the speed round is, What's one book that's changed your life, as we say? Ooh. Um, so there have been a lot of those, but I'm going to go with Graham Greene's book, The End of the Affair. Or wait, no, I'm going to say The Heart of the Matter, and I'll tell you why. Um, the End of the Affair is a better book. Uh, Graham Greene actually thought The Heart of the Matter was his worst book. And I can't... You know, I, I don't feel qualified to to say anything on that point, but but subjectively for me, it was a breakthrough because it was the first time I read a novel and understood why every word was on the page. I felt like I, I was seeing through it for the first time. You know, people talk about how to read like a writer, and a, a writer reads the way an architect looks at a building. You know, you kind of take it apart with your eyes and appreciate the way it's put together and that sort of thing. And and before I read that book, books in general were mysterious to me. You know, as a reader, I could enjoy them, but I couldn't say how they were made. Even, you know, as an aspiring writer, one of the big problems was just not being able to figure out technically how this was done. And so reading a book by a very talented and uh, stylistically refined author and getting it 
was a breakthrough so that like my copy of the heart of the matter that was marked up that had all sorts of, you know, blue highlighting on every page. Not really, but (laughs) just a black pen, I'm sure. But um, that was a breakthrough book for me. And so I've never forgotten it. And I think a lot of the sort of setting and tropes and stuff from that novel imprinted on my imagination in a way as well that, that, um, I always appreciate things in that vein. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for entertaining our speed round. That was fun. Yeah. I wanted to talk about one more thing before we wrap this conversation about reading up. And that's a book that I finished. Well, actually I listened to it Mm. and I should ask you, do you think listening to audiobooks counts as reading? (laughs) Yeah, I do. I do. Um, in the same way that, if uh, your mom reads a book to you when you're yeah. a kid, that counts. Yeah. I think having an actor read it to you as an adult also counts. Yeah. So Cool. Well, then I read Neil Postman's book, yeah. Amusing Ourselves to Death. Mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of people chattering about this book recently. For those who haven't read it, this came out, I think, in 85 or something. And essentially, he's he's talking about how the TV industry changed American culture. And specifically, he chronicles what he thinks is a shift in American culture from essentially print to television or Mm -hmm. image. So we went from a, a print culture to an image culture. And as I was listening through that book, it struck me that it could have been he could have made the exact same argument or people are making the exact same arguments about social media. Right. And how the image and the video have taken over our lives and often at the expense of print or the expense of words, frankly. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit. What you think, well, one, if, if, if you see the ramifications of that and if Christians should care about it, should worry about it, One of my Worldview Academy colleagues, Jay Winslow, has done this lecture for years called The Image of the Lagos, and it is partly based on Postman's observations. What's interesting about that is a book as old as Postman's is still relevant, and that's surprising because not very many media books from the 80s are. If you've ever seen... A photo like there's this this photo of postman which maybe was i don't know if it was publicity for the book or just kind of you know what regular editorial thing he's like standing in the street and there's like a, a television antenna kind of thing you know it's a, it's it is uh not very technologically savvy to today's eyes and yet that book does have this evergreen quality or or, or maybe like cyclical like it's always returning yeah because we find like fresh ways to make the same mistake. Mm-hmm. And the the point of the transition from the print-based culture to the image-based culture is not only that the the tools of literacy are lost in comparison so that you know people today who are highly educated are not as capable as readers of people who in the past would not have been considered highly educated um but also that shift has changed the way we think yeah 
like like in a print-based culture, the patterns of thought follow those print-based, let's say, logical streams. Yeah. He says it's epistemological the, yeah, the shift. Right. And so the way that we think has been altered. It's not just that we've got shorter attention spans, but our ability to reason mm-hmm. has shifted. And I think you see this in the way that the the quote unquote discourse has devolved over time. You know, I remember reading uh, Robert Hughes, the art critic, a book of his called Culture of Complaint. This would have been like in the early 90s. And he was talking about this shift in culture where people were more emotional and subjective and that that disagreeing with someone's opinion was tantamount to attacking them personally. And, you know, I, I look back on that and I think, you know, that's quaint compared to where we are now, but it's also perceptive. You know, I think Postman is putting his finger on the reason why this transformation has taken place. And and another clever thing about his thesis is that he gives you kind of the, like the future you get is not the future you are afraid of. And when he contrasts Orwell's 1984 to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, um, we were afraid of 1984, this sort of top-down totalitarian mind control project. Whereas Brave New World gives you almost a bottom-up, uh, the people willingly giving these things up, deluding themselves. And I think that's very prescient, you know, because for those of us who came of age at the end of the Cold War, there was this sense that we've won and now we're going to, you know, reap the benefits of victory or something like that. And, and yet it seems as if we didn't do that. We kind of went on to own ourselves and, and, you know, we, we weren't defeated. So we defeated ourselves and have this kind of cultural malaise and self-loathing uh, that has a very fantasiacla decadence vibe to it that, um, you know, is, is completely self-inflicted. And so, yeah, it's, it's a not at all surprising thing that people are still talking about Postman. And, and, and I think, you know, a takeaway could be in a world that is increasingly image-based, um, well, that's that's an understatement. It is, you know, almost wholly image-based. There is a value in trying to cultivate these habits of print, certainly for people of the book. And there are, you know, all sorts of benefits. I mean, if, if you've spent your entire life interpreting scripture, you have absorbed hermeneutic tools that are extraordinarily advanced compared to what most people are accustomed to doing, even very educated people. And so um, plenty of, let's say, pragmatic reasons. But again, ultimately, I would just argue for the pleasure, you know, that there, there's, if you think, you know, doom scrolling and binge watching are the height of enjoyment. Uh, you should try reading Russian novels and find that actually 
there is something to be said for that stuff. Yeah. You know, that it offers richer pleasures. It's, it's interesting you say that because part of his argument is that what TV offers, what the image offers is entertainment above all. And that's why we're so drawn to it. And you're saying reading a book, for example, also has its own kind of pleasures, but it's not the same as entertainment per se. Yeah. I mean, I think you could distinguish between like mere entertainment and let's say aesthetic pleasure um, or even like the pleasure of, of thought. Um, when the ancient Greeks went to the theater and saw a play by Sophocles, they were entertained but something more than entertainment was going on. And that is, I think, the beauty of a lot of reading is that there's a, there is a legitimate entertainment value to it once you've sort of paid the price of entry, kind of gotten to the point where you can enjoy those things. But with that enjoyment, you derive a lot of benefits that, that honestly you don't see in the image-based culture. You know, people can binge watch a television series. They can make YouTube videos critiquing that series. They can enter like a fandom where they argue over aspects of it. And it has a sort of pseudo-intellectual appeal and, and a, a, a somewhat, um, you know, an imitation of scholarship. But that's actually very low hanging fruit compared to the enjoyments of the real thing. I'm reminded of a section in your book, mm. as a matter of fact, which I've got here, rethinking worldview. You have a chapter called learning to read and no, well, you knew held it up there. I saw that it's just all highlighted and <laughs> underlined and tattered, almost yeah. falling apart in your yeah. hand. I need but... a second coffee. Mm. You have a section though in that chapter, learning to read on, a benefit, you say a benefit of critical reading is that it heightens your enjoyment in the development of better taste. Yeah. Which is similar to what we're saying here. And because I think the misconception is that critical reading removes pleasure. That yeah. once you start thinking critically about stuff, that's when the enjoyment ends. You know, like the guy who is sitting there in the movies critiquing everything instead of just switching that part of his brain off and enjoying and the reality is that those critical faculties when engaged enhance the pleasure right you're enjoying it on multiple levels if it's done well yeah you say i like this paragraph here you say the the benefit of critical reading is not that you will come to share my tastes or even some transcendent standard of good taste but that your own appreciation of things will improve. You will develop tastes of your own, and they will help you to be more discriminating and demanding as a reader. And this will give you the tools to be a more discerning reader, too, of books and culture. I like that way of approaching it, and maybe that's a good note to end on. Both encouraging people to go read for the pleasure of it and for the benefit that that you can read by by attending to texts by being critical about it but still finding enjoyment in it yeah you can tend to your garden in an edenic sense or you can tend to your taste and it's right. about the same thing yeah 
Well, thank you for this conversation about reading. I'm looking forward to reading later tonight. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the commentary. I hope this episode has encouraged you to pick up a book and do a little reading. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.